just before I get into the heart of the lesson, I just had an observation I wanted to make. In the Haftarah reading, Isaiah 54, chapter, uh, verse 10, where it says, the mount, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. It's interesting. I, I remember a time when Batya's mom looked out across, while well, we were driving down the road, actually. We lived in San Bernardino at the time, so you could see a lot of mountains. And she just looked out and she says, You mean that all these mountains will be gone? Well, yes, that's what Scripture tells us. The valleys will be leveled. The mountains will be brought low. But that, I, I always remember that. that she, she'd take that Scripture and say, Wow, no, you mean there's nobody? Because she would always just marvel at the mountains. She said, Those are all going to be gone? Yeah, that's what Scripture says. Today, the, the message is on the Ark of Salvation. If you ask believers, if you ask non-believers about Noah's Ark, they've all heard about Noah's Ark, which is actually a misnomer. It's God's Ark that Noah built for him. Now, whether or not they've ever read the Bible or ever been to a synagogue or a church, they know about Noah. They know about the ark. They know about the animals getting on the ark. We read it this morning. There was two of every type of creature, birds and animals. And I used to wonder, why did the birds need to get on the ark? They fly. Well, they need a place to rest. They can't fly for 40 days and 40 nights. What's that? But ready for this? This will come back a little bit later. Even two skunks. Okay? In addition to that, the basics of hearing about Noah and hearing about the ark, most people have heard about this great flood. And how the ark stayed afloat until the waters receded. Not all of them have heard the whole story of the rainbow, but they look at a rainbow and they marvel at a rainbow after a rain. But here came the rainbow, and that was God's covenant sign that he would never send a great flood to cover the earth again. The evidence of the popularity of the story of Noah and the ark is everywhere. Last year I talked about a lot of the attractions that involve Noah's Ark. I mentioned some in other countries, but in America alone, you can find Noah's Ark restaurants, Noah's Ark paintings, which are usually not very well depicted, Noah's Ark t-shirts, Noah's Ark coffee mugs, Noah's Ark aprons, and guess what I found on the internet? There's a recipe for Noah's Ark brownies. So in in Frostburg, Maryland, you can see God's Ark of Safety. In Williamstown, Kentucky, there's the Ark Encounter. In Broomfield, Colorado, there's Messiahville, which is going to include a full-size Ark. 
The Cornerstone Church in San Antonio actually includes a $5 million ark complete with animatronic animals. What's that? I, I don't think they're, no, you go for wood, and I don't think they're covered with pitch either. Go for wood. Oh, the, the $5 million, that's in San Antonio. And Wisconsin Dells, it, in Wisconsin, there's a Noah's Ark water park. So there's evidence that people have heard about Noah and the Ark. Now, in my research for this teaching this week, I found something that was called All I Need to Know, I Learned from Noah's Ark. There are 11 points there. Some of you may have read those that before. Number one, don't miss the boat. Number two, remember that we are all in the same boat. Number three, plan ahead. It wasn't raining until Noah built the ark. Number four, stay fit. Because when you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something really big. Number five, don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job that needs to be done. Number six, build your future on high ground. Number seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. That has some practical implications, especially in the day and age we're living. Number eight, speed isn't everything. Because don't forget, snails were on board with cheetahs. Number nine, when you're stressed, float a while. Number ten, remember the ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. And number eleven, no matter the storm, when you're with God, there's always a rainbow waiting. So first, who was Noah? Our portion shows us that there's a number of things that we can learn about Noah. Looking at these things, we can understand why he and his family survived the flood and the rest of humanity was destroyed. So, who was he? Number one, he was a godly man. Genesis 6-9 says, These are the genealogies of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his generation. Noah continually walked with God. As Mouse pointed out in the reading today, the word there used with Noah walking with God is it's an, it's a it's the word that says that Noah made himself to walk with God. He chose to walk with God. He caused himself to walk with God. Not that God said, "Come on, come on, let's go, let's go." Noah chose to walk with God. So this verse is foundational to understanding who Noah was. He was a righteous man. He believed in God, and he took the word of God seriously. Unlike us who have God's word written down to read and study, he heard God's voice, and he paid attention, he listened. So God's word was spoken directly to him. And he didn't doubt what God said was going to happen. He wasn't skeptical. He understood, even then, that if God said it, it would come to pass. So his faith actually became a lifestyle. 
that was so different from his neighbors and friends that in contrast with them, he was blameless. He was also a man who walked with God and knew him personally and intimately. Lord, so be it with us. See, Noah didn't just know about God. He knew God and walked with him daily. Number two, he was a family man. Genesis 6.10 says, Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we know from Genesis 7.7, Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the floodwaters. So that tells us, number one, Noah was married. Number two, he had three sons. And number three, his sons were married as well. Third point is, he was a unique man. Genesis 6, 11 through 12 says, Now the earth was ruined before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was ruined because of all flesh and corrupted their way upon the earth. Those two verses further emphasize the contrast between Noah and the rest of that generation. The word corrupt here means tainted or rotten or to become morally debased or to degrade with unsound principles or moral values. We don't see that in our day and age, do we? See, once they rejected God, those men and women devolved into a life of violence, hatred, abuse, murder, dishonesty, and ugliness. Their hearts had become wicked beyond belief. But as dark as those days were, one man stood out. Noah was a shining light in what would become moral darkness. Moral darkness. It was an impure world. He was pure. It was an unrighteous world, and he was righteous. It was a world that rejected God, but he walked with God. He stood alone. He stood believing God, obeying God by building the ark. You think Noah really understood what it meant that it's going to rain a flood and that that ark was going to house he and his family and all these animals? Do you think he understood that while he was building it? Sometimes we don't need the understanding of why God wants us to do something. The fact that he wants us to do it, we should be doing it. That's what Noah did. He could have questioned him. What? What do you mean flood? What do you mean? What's going on? What do you mean to destroy the earth? He stayed, remained confident that, and he was able to trust God that the flood was going to eventually come and it would destroy the world. Now, his friends and neighbors might even call them names. Hey, there's that crazy Noah over there. There's that guy that's going to rain. They could have made fun of him. We don't know. But it didn't seem to bother him if they did. He was doing God's work. He didn't, keep, he didn't stop doing it. He kept doing it. And he was steadfast. And guess what? God noticed that. Fourth point, he was an obedient man. In chapter 6, verse 22, it says that 
Noah did according to all God commanded him, he did so exactly. He didn't cut corners. He didn't do it his own way. The, that verse, if you notice, will follow the instructions of, that God gave him for building the ark. And if you'll notice what it said, he did according to all God commanded him. And his obedience was absolute because it said that he did so exactly. Not partially. How many have heard this, this, the term half-stepping? He didn't do that. There was never any thought in his mind where he might have said, you know, maybe I'll just build two decks instead of three. Or how about if I use oak instead of gopher wood? Or maybe if I just do 350 cubits instead of 300 cubits. So he didn't argue with God about any of the animals. Remember the skunks. Brought two skunks too. See, he believed God when nobody else did when God said he's bringing a flood upon the earth. There's no reason to question the construction of the ark. You know, it's often said Noah was the first shipbuilder, but he knew nothing about building ships. That was God's construction, God's design. The materials that were involved, God specified them. He didn't even have to be concerned how all these animals are going to fit inside this ark. Because God said it, and that's all no one needed to hear. Fifth, he was a, a bold man. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, He did not spare the ancient world. He preserved only Noah, a proclaimer of righteousness, along with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Some translations say that proclaimer of righteousness is a preacher of righteousness. So that would lead us to believe and understand that Noah just didn't show people that he's building this ark just by watching. He warned people what God was doing. And people didn't listen. Is that any different than today? But he wasn't just a shipbuilder that was constructing a huge boat. He also wasn't just a godly man who let his godly life and actions be a witness. See, during the years that led up to the flood, Noah built the ark, and at the same time, he likely was preaching righteousness to his friends, his neighbors, and everyone else in that generation. But unlike, I mean, mostly like today, fell on deaf ears. And that's obvious because none of them got on the ark. Maybe it's that they were too busy with their lives to be bothered. They had more important things to do. Let's face it. Nobody had ever seen a rain on the earth, especially one that was going to flood the earth and destroy everything. So how could they actually take Noah seriously? To his generation, he was probably like some of the people you've seen today. On a street corner, big sign says, Jesus is coming. The end is near. But people don't care. They're too busy with their own lives. 
Those that believe a little bit that that may be true, they think it's so far in the future that they won't even be alive when it happens anyway. So why bother? It's usually easier for people to just walk on by and carry on with their lives. In our Brit Chadashah portion, Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39 says, For just as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and swept them away. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Yeshua was making this comparison between the days of Noah and the days that were going to be leading up to his return to the earth. Which those are the days we're in now. We're waiting for his return. And just like it was then, it's going to be again. People always want to know what the future is going to be like. All we need to do is look at the past. Look back at Noah's time. What do you see? Wholesale unbelief and skepticism. A generation that didn't have time for God. There was murder and violence occurring every day. Human life then, like now, had no value. Sexual perversion wasn't the exception, it was the norm. As a matter of fact, there were no rules. Men and women did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And it resulted in an evil that was so vile that God decided he needed to start over again. For that generation, it was business as usual. That same moral corruption and business as usual will be the norm again when Yeshua returns. It's sad but true. See, we're living in dangerous times. Over the past several weeks and months, in the U.S. alone, more and more murders are occurring. How many of you flew before 9-11? Most of us, many of us, right? 9-11 changed the way we fly. You get to the airport, you have to go early. You have to take off your belt. You have to take off your shoes. You have to take your laptop out of the case and put it in a separate bin unless you have free pass. And then you go through a scanner. And the list goes on of all the things we have to do nowadays in order to fly just within our country. 9-11 changed our lives and not necessarily for the better. Whether we like it or not, that's true. Well, that was the world Noah lived in before the flood. It's a world filled with violence where no one could feel completely safe. So how was it that Noah was able to save himself and his family from an evil environment like that? In Hebrews 11:7, it says, By faith, Noah, when warned about events not yet seen, in holy fear prepared an ark for the safety of his household. Through faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So then what did Noah do? What did Noah do? Number one, he believed in what God said. He had faith. Number two, he built an ark to save his family. Number three, he rejected the corruption of that society. And number four, he and his family were saved 
from the destruction of the rest of the earth. Summarizing that thought, first he believed, then he built, in doing what he and doing that, he rejected the ways of the world, and as a result, his family was delivered. When the rains finally began, the animals came in. Noah and his family entered the ark together. The door was shut. The floodwaters began to rise, and the ark lifted Noah and his family to safety. So how did he do that? By faith. He believed in God. So I want to address the fathers, the sons, the brothers, the husbands. Listen and pay attention to this. Noah was a righteous man and he had faith in God. His faith saved his family. But notice something. We never hear anything said about the faith of his wife, the faith of his sons, or the faith of his daughters-in-law. But I think that they must have had at least a little bit of faith. Why do I say that? When Noah entered the ark, his wife went with him. When Noah and his wife entered the ark, his sons went with them. When Noah's sons entered the ark, his daughters-in-law went with them. We don't see them questioning it. We don't see any debates going on. He went, they went. So how much faith did they have? I don't know. But they had enough to follow the head of the family. And Noah's faith was enough to cause them to follow his example. That's the power of a godly leader. Noah's faith saved his whole family. He believed and obeyed so completely and walked so closely with God that it became natural for his family to do what he did. They believed because he believed. If we could only have the courage to do what Noah did and believe what God said. Noah was a godly man in an ungodly generation. A shining light in the darkness. Because he had this godly character and obeyed God, when, he, when the world probably thought he was crazy, he ended up saving his family. So... Maybe we shouldn't complain about how hard things are or make excuses about how evil the world has become. We just need to be men and women of conviction and of character. We need to stand on God's word and not worry about the word, world, what the world thinks about that. If we do that, maybe like Noah, we can, by God's grace, save ourselves. Maybe even our families and others as well. Let's talk about the ark. As far as the ark itself, God gave Noah specific instructions on how to build the ark. And we see in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 6, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with compartments and smear pitch on it, both inside and out. Now this is how you were to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a roof for the ark, and you shall finish it to within a cubit from the top, you shall put a door on the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, 
second and third stories. And it was for a specific reason. In verse 17 we read, Now I am about to bring the flood, water upon the land, to destroy all flesh in which the spirit of life from under the sky. Everything that is on the land will perish. Verse 18 gives a specific promise. But I will establish my covenant with you. So you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. But not only Noah's family, verses 19 through 20 says, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of everything, male and female, into the ark to keep alive with you. Of the flying creatures according to their kind, of the livestock according to their kind, of all the crawling creatures on the ground according to their kind, two of everything will come to you to keep alive. But there was one thing still to put on that ark. Verse 21 says, As for you, take for yourself every kind of edible food and gather to yourself. It will be food for you and them. So they had to have a cargo. They had to have their food. Now, speaking of the ark again, I found something interesting during my study. The Hebrew word Keva, which is translated as ark, is only used in two places in the Torah. The first is here in Parashat Noach, and the other is in Parashat Shemot. In both cases, it simply means a box or a crate or a chest. When you consider the other occurrence of the Hebrew word is in Exodus 2, where it's referred to as a, the basket that Moses was placed in by his mother, it's not, because you know I say coincidence is not a kosher word when we're talking about scripture. The basket was coated with pitch. Oh, where did we just hear that? The same material that was used on the ark that Noah built. Here's a big point about this ark. It was not like a motorboat or a yacht or a catamaran. Or a sailboat. It was basically a huge shipping container. Its design was to keep Noah and his family and the animals afloat for the duration of the flood. There was no rudder, so Noah couldn't steer it. It was just floating. No sail, so the wind wasn't blowing it around. It was just floating. Wherever God took it, it floated. That was his, its only function, was to float. And that's all God asked him to build. Build this big box and coat it so it's waterproof. Now, some other information I, I, I came up with. One source says that not only was the ark very large, but scripture gives the measurements in cubits, which usually means 18 inches. Now, some say that a cubit can be as much as 45 inches, but we'll use the 18 inches. So that would make the ark about 450 feet long, 45 feet high, and 75 feet wide. So it was long and narrow with a very low profile. In essence, how many have seen barges out in the harbor? It was essentially, it was just a big barge. Now, the barges have tugboats that have to push them around because they also don't have sails and they don't have a way to steer them or power them. Engineering studies have actually concluded 
that a design ratio like that produces a vessel that is incredibly stable and nearly impossible to capsize. The basic design is a lot like the massive super tankers that transport oil from the Middle East. Considering the 18-inch cubit and allowing for three floors inside the ark, it would have had at least 100,000 square feet of deck space, which would equal the size of 20 regulation-sized basketball courts. The total storage space would have been over 1.5 million cubic feet, about the same capacity of 569 railroad cars. So... With that being said, suffice it to say that considering all those measurements, it's pretty clear that the ark was large enough to transport Noah, his family, and the animals safely through the waters. The other ark of salvation. Aside from the practical purposes of the ark that Noah built, there are actually spiritual applications that we can take away from the story. Three important ones in particular. Number one, God judges sin. As far as those who perished, that's number one. Even though God is patient, even when there's outright rebellion, lawlessness, and blasphemy, his patience has no limitations. Genesis 6.3 says, My spirit will not remain with humankind forever since they are flesh. So their days will be 120 years. So make no mistake, sin will be judged. Sometimes sooner, sometimes later. There will be a judgment in this life. And sometimes that's evident by some of the the pain and suffering that comes to those who choose life apart from God and his commandments. It's ultimately judged in eternity when the unrighteous are subjected to an everlasting punishment. The flood is a reminder that no one can get away with sin forever. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the arm of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Number two, Even in judgment, God's grace, his unmerited favor, is forever. Never ending. Even though the rest of the world was destroyed, one man and his family were saved and delivered. God doesn't leave himself without a witness for the world. So even we see evil men rising to power and sin seems to be celebrated openly, We shouldn't be worried. Until the day when the rains came, the door was wide open. Anyone could have entered the ark. Until the day Yeshua comes, anyone can enter into his presence and become part of his kingdom. Number three, judgment will come when Yeshua returns. And that was Yeshua's point when he compared the days of Noah to the days before his return in Matthew 24. They weren't concerned with the possibility of a divine judgment. Just like men and women of Noah's generation didn't believe in him or believe him, 
Or maybe they didn't even care enough to disbelieve him. Maybe they just completely ignored, which is probably even worse. In that same way, the world won't be concerned even for the slightest possibility that Yeshua will return and bring judgment to the world. Some people are just too busy. As I said before, they're too busy with their lives doing this, doing that. They're busy eating, drinking, playing, sending emails, buying, selling, building, dreaming, singing, or just about anything except getting ready for Yeshua's return. But make no mistake, that day will come and is coming. Just like the flood finally came in Noah's generation, we can believe and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the day of judgment will come to the earth. And it could come sooner than anyone can imagine. So the ark points us to Yeshua. You could say he is the ark of salvation to everyone who believes in him. Think about these final points. Just as the ark was provided by God, Messiah was sent from God as a provision for our salvation. The ark was sealed inside and out with kafar, translated pitch, which is a Hebrew word that also means atonement or covering. Just like the pitch sealed and covered over the spaces between the planks of gopher wood, the blood of Messiah covers our sins so that they can never rise up and condemn us. Third, God only provided one ark and only had one door. God never said, make you know six or seven arks and then people could just choose which one they want to go into. He never provided more than one door. Just one ark, just one door. Yeshua said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the door. He's the only door. Number four, the ark sheltered and delivered everyone who went in. And everyone who comes to Messiah is saved. In John 6, 37, Yeshua said, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And everyone coming to me, I will never reject. Number five, the ark was a place of complete security. No matter how much water there was or how high it began to rise, everyone that was inside, including the animals, were safe. The winds may have been fierce. The waves may have been crashing against the sides. For 40 days and 40 nights, but guess what? It didn't matter. The ark was strong enough to shelter and preserve everyone and everything that was in it. In that same way, anyone who comes to Messiah will not only find themselves saved, but also safe forever and for all eternity. Number six, God himself shut the door to the ark. Noah didn't have a key. Noah had no way of opening that door. And once God closed that door, no one else could get in. That's sad but true. 
while the door was still open, anyone could have come in. Anyone could have answered that call. And they would have been saved from that flood. But once God shut the door, it wasn't going to be opened again until the waters receded. We're living in an age of grace. The door to salvation is open to anyone who wants to enter. That door to salvation is Yeshua. The invitation is open to the entire world. Contrary to some people's thinking, God takes no delight in destroying the world and the wicked. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some consider slowness. Rather, he is being patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the sad truth is, grace won't last forever. There will be death that will come to men sooner or later. There's a time that's coming, and who knows how far in our future it is. It may be tomorrow, maybe next week, it may be years from now. When the gospel call will come to an end and the judgment begins. Finally, as, as Rav Shaul would say, in conclusion, when the waters of the flood finally arrived, everyone inside the ark was saved while everyone outside perished in the rising waters. Now, you may be able to picture this in your mind. It's possible that some people actually came and started pounding on the door. Let us in! But when the floodwaters continued rising, maybe even those skeptics finally realized, no, it wasn't so crazy. By then, it was too late. That same thing will happen again when Messiah returns to the earth. He said in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? Then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those in Messiah and those on the outside will be eternally separated. There's only one question left. Are you in the ark of safety? If Messiah is the ark, are you in Messiah or are you outside of Messiah? Because you never had faith in him or never trusted in him. See, we need to run to the ark, which is Messiah. We should run to our ark of salvation. We need to trust in Yeshua. And it will be my prayer that us and our families will be found safe in Yeshua, who is our ark of salvation. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you and we bless you that you care enough for your people to give us chances. You give us a chance to, to see and hear what you're doing and when you're going to do it so that we can be safe in you. 
We pray that we could be like Noah and just hear your word and be faithful to you just because you spoke it, because we know you spoke it. Lord, if only we could say that we are men and women of righteousness as you said about Noah. He was a righteous man. He walked with you. He chose to walk with you. Help us, Lord, to become more diligent, more faithful, more complete in our worship, more complete in how we follow you. Give us the words to speak to others that they will hear and that they would understand, that they would obey, and that they would turn from their ways and come follow you, making that choice on their own. Lord, we thank you because without you, we can do none of this. Without you, we have no hope. Without you, there is no ark for us to climb into to escape the destruction that is coming. Even though we don't know when and where and how, we know you are coming. We know you are coming soon. We've been hearing that for years. But time for you is irrelevant. Time for you stands still. Maybe there's certain people you're waiting for now to make a declaration of faith make a declaration that you are God and that Yeshua is your son who is our salvation. We don't know how many or how few there are left, Lord, that need to hear your word, but until Yeshua does come, help us to be diligent and help us to go forth witnesses for you ambassadors for your kingdom. Not just by our lifestyle, but give us the words. People that in these days, Lord, are just not easily swayed by what they see you do. So give us the words to accompany those actions and help us to make them line up properly. That when we do speak those words, our actions do what we said. And that we're not just speaking words frivolously. Help us, Lord, as we try to be more diligent for you. And we try to serve you fully, waiting for your kingdom to be revealed to us in the person of Yeshua. In Yeshua's name.